was abandoned their vocabularies Total conversations made of only soul and life And it's so hard to distinguish when you murder the king's English So I sang this little song I thought I'd try Welcome to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran. And today, I have the honor of bringing you an interview with one of the best songwriting teachers out there, Pat Pattison. At Berklee College of Music, Pat created the world's first songwriting major, and his students include Grammy winners John Mayer and Gillian Welch. In the past year, he's taught over 100,000 people in his free songwriting course through the website Coursera. That's how I was introduced to Pat, and that course helped me out a ton with my lyric writing. They just started a new session on Monday, so you can try it out for yourself at coursera.org course songwriting. In teaching songwriting, Pat's overarching motto is preserve the natural shape of the language. He encourages songwriters to think about how everyday speech has a music of its own with natural rhythms and melodies. After my talk with Pat, I remember this composer, whose music you're hearing right now, Charles Spearin. He interviewed his friends and family and created an intricate soundtrack for each person. It's called The Happiness Project, and I encourage you to check it out after this episode. I think it's a great example of some of the things Pat talks about in our interview. Well, thank you. Okay, I blew that one, okay. Send me home, send me home, send me home, send me home. If you're a new listener to ComposerQuest, make sure to check out ComposerQuest.com for all 70 other interviews I've done. And if you want to get in touch with me, email me, charlie at ComposerQuest.com or find Composer Quest on Twitter or Facebook. Now let's get to my interview with songwriting guru, Pat Patterson. Hey, Charlie, how you doing? Hey, Pat. Very good. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. So you've been teaching this Coursera online course for a while, huh? Yeah, it went up last March. It's been pretty uh, mind-boggling. The head of Berkeley Music sent me a link. And I said, watch this link and then call me. And it was uh, Daphne Kohler, who's one of the partners in Coursera, doing a TED Talk on education and how it should be a basic human right and how it should be free for everyone. And that's what Coursera was doing. And so I called Deb Cavalier, the head of uh, Berkeley Music, back and said, yeah, it looks interesting. Uh, why did you show it to me? She said, well, we're doing four courses. We're partnering with Coursera, and we'd like you to do the songwriting course. And so, you know, I said, no problem. And then March 1st, it went up, and 65,000 people took it. That just blew yeah. my mind. Yeah. And then, then, it, then it went up again. 38,000 people took it. And then it went up again, and 26,000 people took it. And now it's coming up again January 27th. And I, I haven't looked recently, but I think we've got sixteen or 17,000 signed up already. Oh. So, you know, I, could, I couldn't reach that number of people 
at Berkeley unless I taught for 300 years. <laughs> you know, I've done the math, 300 years. <laughs> <laughs> Is it weird that you're a celebrity now in the uh, Coursera world anyways? <laughs> uh, it, it, it did get a little weird. We did a European tour, and I'd walk in to the seminar, and uh, there'd be some uh, a group over in the corner. They'd start pointing and say, that's him, that's him. And, you know, that, that was really weird. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's kind of fun. But for me at this point, it's more about getting the information out there than anything else, and that's just really gratifying. What originally got you interested in songwriting or how did when did you know you wanted to be a songwriter well i never wanted to be a songwriter i don't think when i was teaching philosophy at indiana university i had a little band a little folk band and uh, me and two gals singing our hearts out covering dylan songs and all of that stuff and we started sending demos out to los angeles and we got one letter back from a guy at A&M Records, and he said, you know, really love what you guys are doing. Unfortunately, we don't sign anybody who's doing covers. We only will sign people who are doing original songs. And so I said to myself, I said, how hard can that be? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I started writing songs for the band. I mean, they're terrible songs, but I started writing songs for the band. Um, and so we became an original music band. You know, we're touring around and uh, playing our original songs. And then I came to Berkeley. We, get, we came to the East Coast. And I found uh, I wanted to get back into teaching. You know, I've always been a teacher and will continue to be. I think of myself as a teacher who writes, not as a writer who teaches. And, you know, once I started putting the songwriting major together, I really started learning what it takes to write a song. But the, the whole reason that there is a songwriting major at Berkeley is because I decided to uh, teach a literary criticism course. I knew nobody would take a lit crit course at Berkeley, so I called it Analysis of Song Lyrics. <laughs> uh, and so I took you know the lyrics of Steely Dan and Joni Mitchell and Dylan and uh, Leonard Cohen and Paul Simon and started taking them apart. And so I started really seeing some of the DNA of what goes into it. And my students are saying, boy, this is really helping me as a songwriter. And I thought, well, that's good. And I was understanding it. And, you know, suddenly my songs were getting better, too. And, and you know, students at Berkeley are absolutely fabulous. They're hungry, they're committed, and they keep pushing you, you know. <laughs> you know, they, they have their bullshit detectors on all the time. And if you're not giving them something that's useful, they're out of there. So they keep me looking and digging, and it's been a really, really fun journey. Yeah. I really appreciated your Coursera course because there's very few people who talk about the details of like how you actually put lyrics together and how does that, what's the theory behind that? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've taken music theory classes, but seeing that for the lyrical side is cool too. Cool. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. One thing at the end of your course you brought up that I thought would be interesting to talk about is the harmonic functions of speech, <laughs> which sounds pretty heady, but maybe you could kind of explain that. 
Uh, Leonard Bernstein has a uh, lecture series that he did in 1973 at Harvard, and he called it The Unanswered Question. Uh, by the way, available on YouTube, those six lectures. Also available at Amazon, of course, in DVD. I highly recommend them. I watch them every five to ten years, and every time I see them, I get something new. I was watching them probably about six or seven years ago, and uh, in his second lecture on musical phonology, he said that in every culture, people whine and tease in minor thirds. I said, I don't So because they whine and tease in minor thirds, you know, I thought it must be true. Lenny said it. So, um, but then I asked myself the question, well, if we tease and whine in minor thirds, it must be a minor third from something. So I wonder if when we speak, we sort of establish a tonic. And so I just, uh, with that in mind, I just started listening to myself. And it seemed like when I'm speaking like I am now, I'm speaking right now from basic, what's basically my tonic, the fundamental tone, the, the da, da, do, do, do. That's probably about it. And usually for me, it's somewhere around an A. Hmm. Uh, so the do, 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 do. That is established by the grammatical functions, by my articles, my prepositions, my conjunctions, my personal pronouns. And generally speaking, my stress, my my stress, my stress, my stress, my stress, move up a third to a fourth. And then when I emphasize, when I emphasize, when I emphasize something, moves up about a fifth. So that what I'm doing when I'm telling the truth is arpeggiating my tonic with my stressed and emphasized syllables. It's not that I'm saying notes, it's that I'm arpeggiating a tone center. It's not that I'm saying notes, it's that I'm arpeggiating a tone center. It's not that I'm saying notes, it's that I'm arpeggiating a tone center. And that harmonic function would be the tonic function. So do, 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 re, mi, fa, there's the fourth degree of my scale, fa. When I talk here in the fourth degree of my scale, it sounds like I'm going somewhere. It sounds you don't know where I'm going, but you know you shouldn't interrupt me because I'm on my way. And that fourth degree of my scale is also set by my grammatical functions. And and, and when I and when I stress, when I stress, when I emphasize, when I'm, I'm arpeggiating the fourth degree of my scale. That's my subdominant function. So do do re mi fa so. So there's my fifth degree of my scale. When I'm talking, when I'm talking on the fifth degree of my scale, you can hear me sort of, sort of being aggressive. You can hear me, you can hear me sort of dominating. It's the dominant function, and when I'm, uh, I'm usually angry in my dominant function. So when I when I speak there, uh, you you generally want me to be more comfortable, get back to my tonic function because dominant always wants to go to tonic like this, and then you relax. So. Uh, the harmonic functions of language is a way of looking at the way we speak in terms of chord structures and in terms of stable and unstable. When I got interested in it, I thought, wow, this is interesting. I wonder who else has done something on this. I'd like to read it. I did a search, and the only thing I found was a paper 
by a woman at SUNY in New York who had done a, a paper on the use of minor thirds in speech. So I contacted her and said, loved your paper. Hey, this is what I've been thinking about. Can you direct me to where I might find some information on this? And she emailed me back and said, I think you're absolutely right that that's what happens. But uh, as far as I know, nobody's done anything about it. I think it's a unique idea. So I've been interested off and on in developing this thing, and I'm kind of waiting until Berkeley gets graduate students, which will happen in the next couple of years. I was a graduate student. I was a, a teaching assistant at uh, Indiana University. And uh, the other word for graduate student assistant is slave. And so I'm looking forward to having some slaves, and I'll just assign them to go and do this stuff, you know, to actually do the research, to uh, bring actors in and tell them to talk like they're just saying the news and then to talk like they're excited and to talk like they're angry. and Because, you know, um, we're sad in minor thirds. We're happy in major thirds. We ask questions in fifths, don't we? Yes. When we're angry, we're in fifths. Uh, when we're really angry, but we know we have the truth, we're at octaves, and we threaten each other on the dominant function below the tonic, don't you talk to me like that, you know, that sort of thing. So it's, it's really an interesting place to go, and it wouldn't be hard to research it, but I just am busy with so many other projects that, you know, and besides, if I found out it wasn't true, then I couldn't talk about it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I saw you talking about that, I looked back at uh, Martin Luther King Jr. speech and it was just fascinating because over the course of his 15-minute speech, his pitch like slowly rises up. Like yep. very gradually he'll reach peaks in his speech, but it's so controlled. Like every minute he'll go up a half step or something. Yep, yep, yeah. In fact... Uh, the former president of Warner Brothers heard me talk about it and was really excited and said, you know, the next time you come to Nashville, I want you to come over and I want to listen to the I Have a Dream speech and to the Ask Not What Your Country Can Do and part of the OJ trial and, you know, just see how this stuff applies there. He says, I think it's a really wide-ranging application. But for me, you know, I, I use it to outline... You know, how am I feeling, stable or unstable? And so I'll say my lyric, and if I'm saying something like, uh, <clears throat> I, want you to, I want you to always be with me. I want you to be always with me. I want you always to be with me. What a line. Isn't that great? Um, mm -hmm. I want you always, if I say it there, I want you always to be with me. I'm expressing a fact. If I say it on my fourth degree, I want you always to be with me. Now I'm pleading. And so that's going to lock into the whole thing I'm doing on phrasing. I'll probably phrase that back heavy, that is, after the downbeat, if it feels, I want you to be, instead of, I if I say, I want you to be with me, that's probably going to be right on the downbeat. Uh, and so it locks into identifying your lines as either stable or unstable, and therefore giving you a suggestion about how you might uh, work your phrasing. Yeah. Well, your whole idea of stable versus unstable in your lyrics is kind of mind-blowing. Could you explain what makes things stable and what makes things unstable? Well, whatever idea you're dealing with, if your feeling about that idea is, so is a feeling of kind of longing or a sadness or 
dreaminess or wistful or bittersweet or, you know, that would be somewhere around unstable, you know, because stable, unstable covers your ideas. It covers your choices in harmony. It covers your choices in melody and it covers your choices in lyric structure so that if I'm feeling unstable in an idea, I have many ways to express that in terms of my structure. I think of structure as the film score of your idea, that how you put it together comments on your ideas in the same way that a film score comments on the images on the screen. So that if I'm feeling unstable in this verse about how much I wish that I could be with you, then I have choices. One of the choices might be to use an odd number of lines because an odd number of lines feels like something's missing. And if I want to be with you and you're not here, then something's missing. So that reinforces that, the feeling that the three lines has. I might use line length to do that. So I might do a four-line sequence with a short fourth line where I'm expecting it to be longer. And then I feel like I'm missing something. In my rhyme scheme, rather than being A-A-B-B or A-B-A-B, might be A-B-B-A. Or it might be A-A-A-B, leaving the last one open. Something that feels like I'm missing something. Or it might be a, a rhyme type. Uh, instead of a perfect rhyme, it might be a, uh, an assonance rhyme or a consonance rhyme. And that feels like it's not completely done. So all of these things would support the notion of missing you. If I were to say I'm missing you and do it in a very stable sequence, then it's just going to feel like a fact. And so once you get onto this idea of prosody, that is, that everything should support each other and express the prosody with stable, unstable, then your choices become a lot clearer. And that's what I find so helpful about uh, using the concept of prosody as applied to songwriting. Yeah. Okay, here's an epic question for you. Who do you consider the best songwriter ever in your eyes? Oh, I have no way to answer that. Um, <laughs> there have been some pretty good ones coming along. You know, Irving Berlin's not bad. Paul Simon's pretty conscious. I'm pretty partial to John Mayer. I don't know if he's the greatest songwriter ever, but he sure is setting the bar for pop writing right now and has been for the last 10 years. In a writer, I'm looking for somebody who brings everything to the table, you know, who brings heart, who brings their vision, and particularly who bring their brain to the table so that uh, they're aware of what they're doing and they're making conscious choices. I don't have a lot of patience for people who feel like they're downloading from the cosmos. You know, just like, that's how it came out. You know, okay, great. Now let's make it better. But, uh, you know, just writing from a place of understanding rather than from a place of fear where you're just grateful for any idea that comes along and you don't want to change it because you don't know how. And, you know, it's not about the ideas, it's about how you support the ideas. When you're writing a song, do you ever feel like your songs get formulaic? And if so, what do you do about that? Well, uh, you stop it. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty simple, you just, you just don't. But you don't think of songs in terms of formulas. If you do, you're doing it wrong. Think of songs in terms of supporting your idea and just have your tools. 
if you stay in service of the idea, it's not going to be a problem. Would you be willing to talk about your song, Leave My Like Alone? <laughs> I, I like that one. I was sitting in a coffee house in Nashville full of college students, and they were all like-like um, and like. I was like, you know, and then like I was, you know, and then like I was, you know. And I just I said, I'm just tired of this. And the waitress came up and uh, she said, like, um, would you would you like like anything? <laughs> <laughs> and she had enough body piercing that I sort of wanted to wrap a rope around her ankle and, and troll for bass. Uh, <laughs> but I thought I got to do something about this. And so I did. I just wrote out the lyric to that. And then when I sat in a room with Greg Barnhill, he said, what is this? And I just said, you know, look at it. So he did. And. He said, I, I really like this. And so he tried several different things, and none of it was happening, at least for me. I said, uh, let's look further. And in, in, in the South, they have the uh, WWJD that uh, you know, people have on bracelets and stuff. Uh, and it's a reminder. It's, what would Jesus do? <laughs> Gillian Welsh made me a, a bracelet, WWDD, what would Dylan do? Um, but uh, at that, what I said to uh, Greg Barnhill, WWRND, and he said, what's that? I said, what would Randy Newman do? <laughs> he said, oh, I got it now. Like clouds that list the open sky high above Nevada Like dust behind the horses on the dry plains of Montana Like thunder in the summer in the hills outside Atlanta The pictures that I like come rolling by But like I don't like like when it's like used like it's like nothing Like I don't like like when it's like you Instead of said, like she's like no way, he's like okay, man, like that's so not like my tone. Yeah. Now, won't you just leave my like alone? Yeah, leave my like alone. Is it still true that your Berkeley songwriting major is the only one in existence? No, there are, there are other pretenders now. Oh. <laughs> I think Belmont College in Nashville has one, and there are, there are some others running around that have a uh, sort of a major. But, you know, I'd like to think that uh, Berkeley still is the best there is. We've got such a crack faculty there and such great students and uh, a track record. We've got tons of Grammys coming out of there, and you know, I think that speaks volumes. Yeah, so. and your, your students, too. Uh, yeah. John Mayer, Gillian Welch. Yep. What was it like having them in your class? Oh, it was great. It was great. Gillian is setting the bar in her genre, and John is setting the bar in his. But, you know, it's not that they were unusually wonderful students. Berkeley's full of those folks. And it's just a matter of where the uh, three lemons line up on the slot machine, partly, and how much you drive and how much persistence you have, how much passion you have for it. Charlie Warsham, who's now 
making a lot of noise with Warner Brothers Records, was also a great student and um, looking for great things from him. Liz Longley is really wonderful. Emily Shackleton is writing in Nashville for uh, Taylor Swift's company, and she has a huge tune, uh, has made a lot of money on the show Nashville. So, you know, they're out there doing stuff, and that makes me happy. Cool. Okay, well, I've got to run. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, it has been. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Pat. Yeah, well, um, uh, again, patpatterson.com, and take a look, and there's stuff on the site, and uh, certainly sign up for the Coursera course. You're going to have a good time. All right, thanks. Okay, thanks. Yep. See you, Charlie. We'll see ya. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Pat Pattison. I encourage you to check out Pat's four songwriting books, including Writing Better Lyrics, which is John Mayer's personal favorite. He says he keeps it on the tank of his toilet. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I guess as long as there are no pages missing, I'm okay. If you're interested in these books, visit patpattison.com. I have links to all the songs you heard in this episode at composerquest.com slash pat, including this song, which is All I See Is You by Pat Pattison and Sally Barris. In the last episode, I made the announcement of our latest composing quest to write a piece of music for your valentine to perform. I hope that goes well for you. And remember to email me your finished piece by Monday, February 17th, if you want to be included in the Composer Quest Hall of Fame. And again, my email is charlie at composerquest.com. All I see is you. Special thanks to Charles Spearin for letting me feature the Happiness Project in this episode. Go to happiness-project.ca to check out the entire thing which I think is incredibly beautiful. I want to leave you with another sample of it from a track called Mr. Gowry. Like Pat Pattison was describing, I think there's a tonic note to Mr. Gowry's speech. And if you think you hear it too, tweet or email me your guess. You'll see a family. Well, I don't see it too much here because up here everything is commercial, you know, and anything you want you can buy. And most times you have enough money to buy it. Because you don't have to buy the best, you can buy second best, or even third best, you know, and, uh, and still be happy. Mm-hmm. You can still get it. Still yeah, third best. But, but there are certain areas, like I come from a poor country, like I come from a poor country, like I um, Maybe you could tell me a little bit about how you grew up. Yes, yes, yes. I, I grew up in a family of 14 children, you know, and my father had these 14 children with one person, my mom. My mom. My mom. My mom. My mom. My mom. My mom.
She had so many children in so short a time that she died while she was still a young person. She was perhaps slightly over 40 years when she died and she had 14 children. That means that she used to have a child almost every year. Yeah, that's true. You know, I was, I'm the third of my father's children. I had two sisters ahead of me and then I got myself a boy and then after me a girl and then a lot of boys to me about 14. <laughs> and later on in life we had fingers, you know. So sometimes I have to count down my fingers to remember which one was worse. <laughs>